This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to, or perhaps welcome back to, the Bright Focus Chat. Today's question is, today's topic is AMD, your questions answered. Our guest is a first-time guest uh, here at Bright Focus, uh, Dr. Avnish Diobakta. He's an ophthalmologist and an assistant professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. I want to take a minute to tell you a little bit about what we'll do today. Once a month on the Bright Focus Chats, we have an opportunity to spend about 30, 35 minutes with some of the leading experts in the nation on vision disease and eye health. Let's turn to our first-time guest, uh, Dr. and Professor Avnish Dabakta. So, uh, Dr. Dabakta, let's, uh, let's start by telling us about yourself. What do you, what do, you do at the Mount Sinai Hospital? Sure. Uh, so thank you for having me. Um, uh, it's a real privilege to be able to speak to people um, in this sort of a setting for a disease that affects quite a few people um, in this country. Um, so I'm a vitreoretinal surgeon uh, at the Mount Sinai Hospital, uh, which is also part of the uh, New York Eye and Ear Infirmary um, of Mount Sinai. Um, and uh, I'm in the academic faculty practice, um, and we see all sorts of different patients um, who have uh, retinal diseases, um, and we perform surgery on them, and we treat them in our clinics. Um, I also I'm very, very uh, connected to our uh, academic teaching uh, program. Uh, I'm helpful in running the fellowship uh, for uh, uh, young residents who want to uh, become retinal surgeons, um, as well as the fellows who um, uh, wish to become uh, retinal surgeons in the future. Um, We do a lot of research um, on uh, things like macular degeneration. Um, we certainly do a lot of imaging, um, and we're very, very familiar with, with this disease. Um, it's certainly something that makes up probably around half of my clinic that I see uh, privately. So um, it's certainly uh, something that I'm very, very interested in. Great. So for the, I guess, the career day question, um, how did you come to do this? Oh, sure. So, I mean, I think... Um, you know, when I started uh, in medical school, um, I think one of the f- things that I thought of was that of all the senses that we have, vision, I think, is incredibly fundamental to the human experience. Um, you know, we kind of re- reflect that idea in our platitudes, like seeing is believing, and um, certainly the ability to give back sight is so foundational that um, it's actually found in our ancient religious texts, right, as a, almost as a proxy for the divine. So, um, But in the real world, um, our ability to help people with vision-related problems was, up until recently, very limited. Um, And I think that part of what excited me about the field was that outside of the ability to interact with a variety of different patients and sort of directly intervene surgically, to me, scientifically, I think it's part of the next frontier of medicine. Um, The ability to have really specialized medicines like those that we all know are used to treat macular degeneration um, or to have, you know, cutting edge approaches to uh, solving new problems like the first ever FDA approved gene therapy, which was actually for something called retinitis pigmentosa. Um, or even to sort of a science fiction style p- potential, sort of like regenerative medicine of things like the retina, which is ongoing research that we have, are all part of vision science. So, you know, to me, I think the field has um, incredible potential advancements that we haven't discovered yet. And I think from my perspective, it would be, it was wonderful to have the opportunity to contribute to that. Great. Thanks. I want to stay on your, the point you made about how important the sense of sight is, um, you know, from my perspective, there's sort of a paradox of losing vision is probably one of most people's greatest fears, but yet yeah. it also seems like most people either don't know enough or don't do enough about their vision health. And I recently saw a study in the news uh, from the American Academy of Ophthalmology. It said four out of five Americans weren't aware 
of the major diseases that cause blindness, such as macular degeneration and glaucoma. How do you, you know, from your vantage point, how do you see kind of that that paradox of, of people worrying greatly about losing their vision, but yet at the same time maybe not knowing too much about how to preserve their sight? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a major, major issue. Um, and I, to be honest, I think that pretty much falls squarely on our shoulders, that is, eye, eye professionals, eye doctors, um, eye health uh, specialists, um, since we function sort of as de facto purveyors of vision health education when push comes to shove. Um, you know, w- one of the biggest sort of tragedies of a disease like macular degeneration uh, is that people will often show up once something severe has occurred, uh, such as a bleed underneath the retina or something like that, because that's when they're symptomatic and have vision issues. And so uh, the problem is that these issues issues are often difficult to reverse once they've occurred, and sometimes these patients are facing permanent vision loss. Um, but, you know, if they were identified earlier in the course of the disease, it may have been possible not only to sort of reduce the chance of some of these complications occurring, but also to catch potentially dangerous situations from, a, from occurring prior to them becoming impossible to manage, and, and then to intervene with things like surgery or injections more quickly. So, you know, in my opinion, that article really, really kind of points to the fact that you know, any activity that we do that increases the public's knowledge of vision-threatening diseases and sort of what they are and how to treat them, um, sort of like this very session we're doing right now with Bright Focus, um, or any other type of outreach program are immensely helpful in potentially reducing the chance that some of these uh, things, from from some of these things from occurring. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a big, big issue. Yeah, no, I Appreciate your point. And, 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 you know, one of the goals of the Bright Focus Chats is to educate people about the latest developments in vision health. And um, I understand there's a there's a new um, uh, treatment for wet AMD that just, just uh, recently came onto the market. I was wondering if you could you know, kind of mention what that is and you know, as a way of uh, helping people know what some of some of the options are, maybe being familiar with a with a word or two um, when their doctor mentions it. Oh, certainly. Um, so, you know, the new medicine that really just came out uh, a few months ago um, is called Beovu. Um, and what it is, is it's it's something called a uh, single chain antibody fragment. Now, you don't have to know what that exactly means, but all you have to know is that that's a very new way of targeting the molecule that we think primarily causes the wet form of AMD, which is a very dangerous form of AMD. Um, that molecule is called VEGF for the those who aren't familiar. And because VEGF causes new, more fragile blood vessels to form underneath the retina, when it's secreted in high amounts in the wet form of AMD, it, this molecule can damage the retina by increased bleeding and subsequent scarring. And so that a lot of people lose their vision because of that. So thus blocking this molecule in particular is key in the treatment of this very dangerous form of AMD. And each medicine that you know of on the market, so there's something called Avastin, something called Lucentis, something called Ilea, and now there's something called Beovu, they, it, they each target and block this VEGF molecule somewhat differently. And in the specific case of Beovu, some of the studies have shown um, that uh, you know, relative to the, some of those other medications, it might be able to treat the wet form of macular degeneration with fewer treatments, so fewer injections, fewer administrations than some of these other medicines that are currently on the market. And that's one of the biggest sort of advantages um, when we're treating AMD um, is to have something that can last maybe a little longer, maybe reduce that treatment burden, um, but still be efficacious. And so um, this is this new medicine that's come out. So, yeah. Well, that's great. No, I appreciate the update. And just, you know, for people's curiosity, how does a new drug become 
you know, go go from the the scientist lab into a, a clinician's office? How you know, how does that yeah, process work? Yeah. That's a that's a great question, and I mean, I think you know, speaking as somebody who does quite a bit of research, um, it's very material to sort of the things that I do. But um, in the United States, in particular, any new drug that's available for public use has to be basically approved by the Food and Drug Administration, which most people know by its acronym as the FDA. Um, and this process for approval is very, very extensive. So the the individual or the group, or in this case, the manufacturer or sponsor, um, has to initially conduct a series of scientific tests to, discern, to determine that the drug itself is safe, um, that it does what it, it's supposed to do, and that it shows some kind of health benefit. Um, and so if they can show those three things, then it can get approved. Uh, but these tests are usually trials that are first done in a laboratory setting. So, you know, we first do it in, where there's no, nothing, no life involved, just in a laboratory setting, and then on animals, and then once they're shown to this, these drugs, these new drugs are shown to be safe there, then later on humans. So if any of the people listening have heard of the phrase clinical trials, well, those are the trials that are done on humans, and they're done after these laboratory settings and these animal tests have shown that this, this drug is safe and kind of does what it claims to do. So then they have to hurdle now with the human tests. Um, and typically a manufacturer will have to go through a number of phases of clinical trials. So it's not just one. Usually it goes through a bunch of them, including what's called a phase three trial. Um, and that trial tends to be the kind of the, the final one where the new medicine is either test, is tested either against what's called a dummy medicine, which is a medicine that really doesn't do anything if there's no other treatments out there for comparison, um, or a gold standard medicine already in use. So in AMD, we have a lot of medicines that are in use, like Ilea, Avastin, Lucentis. So these drugs would be tested against those drugs. And if the new medicine that's coming out, in this case, Biovu or any other drug, shows safety, does what it claims to do, and shows some kind of health benefits after even the clinical trials, then the FDA will make a decision on whether to approve or not approve the medicine for public use. And so, you know, one thing I always like to point out whenever I, you know, a resident, fellow, or a patient asks me about this process, I say that the whole process is quite extensive and expensive. And so as a result, the FDA really only approves something on the order of 30 to 50 new medicines per year. So that's, that's not really a big number there. And it goes to show just how kind of difficult it is to hurdle those processes. So when a new drug does make it to market, um, it really has gone through a lot of these, these sort of hurdles. Great. Thank you, Dr. Diabakta. And so in terms of the, you know, the new medicines that come on the market, um, you know, maybe somebody could cynically say that medicines only, only work if you take them. Um, uh, so, right. you know, my understanding of the wet AMD um, process, it can seem pretty challenging, pretty time demanding on, on, the, on caregivers and, and the patients. Um, and I think you and I both recently saw a study from the University of Pennsylvania that says if you just miss one treatment over a couple-year period that there can be some uh, regression. So how do you in your practice um, help patients and their families uh, adhere to treatment regimens as, as best they can? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think one of the most difficult aspects of this disease that that paper uh, points out is that is kind of this almost unrelenting pace of the necessary treatment. So, you know, in this uh, in this disease, some patients require monthly injections, and sometimes they require monthly injections in each eye in order to control their disease. So yes, you know, and I've seen it, even missing one visit can sometimes lead to devastating bleeds that once they've occurred, they cannot be easily fixed. Um, and, you know, I have a few patients that will see me almost 24 times in one year because they need injections in each eye, and for whatever reason, we can't do both eyes on the same day, etc. So you know, this is a very, very, very challenging situation that we deal with. Um, 
you know, our clinic tries our best to kind of connect them. We happen to be connected to a social work uh, apparatus that is extremely good. And so I often, if patients can't get rides and that sort of thing, I'm able to connect them with the various uh, people that can help them to access sort of the the things that they can access with the various programs in the state of New York. Um, But another way sort of to, to kind of mitigate some of this is that the new treatments that we have, which can potentially extend the durability of treatment and thus reduce that injection burden, like we discussed earlier, might be able to help ameliorate this problem. So as an example, you know, if you, I, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a patient or just a person, you know, it's incredibly difficult to just find a ride if you need one 24 times in one year, let alone if you need it to go to your doctor's appointment. Um, but in a very real sense, given the variables required for each visit, you have to find a caregiver, you probably sometimes you have to take off work, etc. It's almost exponentially easier to accomplish all of that if it's only necessary four or five times a year. So getting that burden down is one of the ways to, to, to kind of to kind of deal with the problem and then also then connecting them with different programs if you have access to them. And we happen to have access to it because we're part of an academic facility and that, that that's helpful in this case. Yeah. Well no I appreciate those are those are great tips and and I think you're right if everybody everybody involved works to uh to make it as manageable as possible. Let's start with a couple of listener questions that have come in. Um I want to ask you about genetic testing. I think people hear more and more advertisements uh, in in the media about genetic testing. Um, Is this something that, that has value in terms of macular degeneration? Well, you know, um, it's a it's a good question. I get the I get the question almost every single day whenever I have clinic, probably multiple times, um, whether people should be getting genetic testing or not. You know, so definitely we know that AMD is what's called a multifactorial disease. So that is, in this case, it's affected both by genetics and by environment. Um, I think the number is that people with an affected parent have something like twice the risk of getting the disease um, as, as compared to someone who, who does not have an affected parent. Um, so, you know, I, I never actually ask people to go and get genetic testing, despite the fact that, you know, we know that in the future, it's probably going to be helpful from an academic sense. But at the moment, the information at present hasn't really been shown to change any treatment strategy. So what I often say is that if somebody has an affected family, family member um, or has a family history of AMD, then it's best for them to see an ophthalmologist, which most people do, eat a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, avoid red meat, you know, eat fish, and above all else, avoid smoking. So control the sort of environmental factors that you have. And then, you know, if, you know, at some point in the future, we start seeing that genetic testing is leading to treatment changes, then for sure, I think we would say for people to get it. But at present, it hasn't shown that. It's more for sort of an academic perspective. Perhaps in the future, it will be necessary, but not just yet. No, it's interesting. I think it shows you both the importance of um, good good communication between generations in a family, but also uh, some of the lifestyle issues. I'm sure we'll have other questions about that um, pretty yes. soon. Another question, um, someone asks, is it possible to reverse vision loss that's already occurred? Yeah, so so this is a very good question, and I think a lot of patients come in with a, with with that sort of concern. And I think I think it depends, is what I always say. So um, it depends on the type of disease that you have. So so macular degeneration in particular, um, if that's what you have, um, is split into two different forms. And um, one is a dry form, which is what most of the people have, um, where you don't have bleeding and swelling of the retina and fluid accumulation in the retina. And then you have the wet form, which is the thing that 
we discussed earlier, where you have you can have bleeding, you can have new blood vessels growing, and that's the stuff that we treat with with medicines. Um, if you are having some fluid that is potentially removable by some of these medications, which we deliver with injections, then yes, it is possible to actually have an increase in vision. And that's probably one of the biggest advancements in the last 20 years that we've had in, in our entire field, let alone just for macular degeneration, that these injections can actually reverse some of that damage depending on what type of damage it is. So if it's fluid in the retina that is removable with these injections, then yes, a lot of times patients can see it. However, if there is permanent damage like scar tissue forming or something called atrophy, which is where the retina itself uh, is, is damaged to the point where it cannot regrow back or it's kind of disappearing because it's been damaged so much over time, and that can also happen with dry and it can happen with wet, then in those cases, oftentimes we really can't do anything at present. I'd always tell patients, and I always tell them this, that just like we didn't have a treatment for macular degeneration in its wet form 10 to 15, 20 years ago, we now, you know, and now we do, we certainly are working on things to try to fix some of the unfixable things, some of the unfixable uh, parts of vision loss that this disease puts on, on patients. And so um, I never tell them to lose hope, but it's just sometimes we can reverse it and sometimes we can. And it all depends on sort of what it looks like when you see your ophthalmologist. So I always encourage them to go see their ophthalmologist so they can figure out exactly what type of damage they do have. And uh, to the point you made a few minutes ago about the, the, the number of injections some people need, we have a, um, a listener who emailed us a question asking, is the eyeball damaged from these repeated injections? That's a that's a really really great question. So you know you would think that um, you know initially when I when I first learned how to do these injections in residency you would think that yeah if you continuously inject somebody that there would be some major permanent damage that you would have because you're sticking a needle in someone's eye. But in reality we don't really see that. Um, it really matters what you're injecting. So a lot of times you know you inject different types of medicines into the eye for different diseases. The some of the safest actually um, medicines out there are the medicines that we use for macular degeneration. So the ones we've talked about, Beovu, Ilea, Lucentis, and Avastin, those, those actually don't really show too, you know, really long-standing damage to the eye. The one thing I would say is that if somebody's getting so many injections over, and we see this deck, you know, people have been getting injections for seven, eight, nine, ten years, sometimes you can have elevated risks of glaucoma or some other uh, types of diseases, but, but in reality, or cataract or something like that, but in reality, those are really... They're pretty rare, and on a on an injection to injection basis, it's a fairly fairly safe procedure um, if you're getting it long term. I'd actually say it's more safe than anyone could have imagined, to be honest. No, it's good to know, and certainly compared to some of the some of the alternatives. Um, another uh, listener is wondering about saffron. Um, is that helpful? Uh, she has heard that saffron could be helpful for AMD. This is not something I'm familiar with. I was wondering if you sure uh, if you were. Yeah, that's a great. I mean, she's been really looking into the studies there. I think it's um, so. There are some small studies out there um, that that initially, you know, that suggest that saffron in small doses can help. Um, what's called the way they put it is stabilize the retina for a small period of time. Um, I, I believe one of the studies that was actually done actually only had a follow up of about six months and it was recently published. Um, the issue with it is that, like all things um, dietary um, or otherwise, the the evidence is somewhat limited um, at present. So, you know. It's it's not something that um, 
I would say, uh, should be a generalized indicated use for AMD treatment, but it's certainly something that we need to consider for the future and definitely merits f- further study. To be, to be honest with you, the whole reason why we have the vitamins that we do, the AREDS2 vitamins that people use for dry macular degeneration and prevention, is because someone made an observation decades ago that people who had certain diets actually seemed to be doing better and had a reduced progression risk rel- with macular degeneration relative to other uh, people who were not on that diet. So th- that, that's what spurred on everyone to look into what vitamins work and what didn't, what food items worked and what didn't. So who knows, maybe in the future this could be true, but at the present the studies are just too small, but certainly future uh, evidence uh, would be great if we could get it. That's great. And another question uh, from an audience really builds on that point. Um, you mentioned uh, AREDS too and um, uh, vitamins and nutritional supplements. And th- this uh, listener basically is wondering, can you have too much of a good thing? Like, is there a risk for having too too many of the um, of these um, vitamins and supplements and nutrients? Sure. Uh, so I, this is a great question. I mean, I you know the AREDS two formulation. Um, well, well, just to go back, you know, you had you have some people on uh, that were very instrumental on Bright Focus's uh, you know f- uh, sessions in the past, um, who were incredibly instrumental in sort of running these studies when they first began, including Dr. Emily Chu, and um, she sort of figured out which ones to use and her team, uh, which types of vitamins to use um, that can sort of pr- uh, reduce uh, vision uh, loss or certain, certainly progression of vision uh, loss from this disease. But initially, it was one formulation, and now it's a different formulation. And the reason why is because some of the stuff that we included, like beta carotene in the, in the first uh, formulation, was, uh, was shown to have some adverse effects, and so they were switched, it was switched out. And we've added lutein and zeaxanthine to the current AREDS2 formulation. But yeah, so there are some some parts of that, some components of that that can be, you know, when taken in excessive doses, uh, be harmful, in particular vitamin E and zinc. Um, now, the studies basically showed that the, the formulation that we have right now is fairly safe. So, you know, if you're taking the AREDS2 formulation, you can continue taking it. But if you're taking, in addition to that, a lot of vitamin E, um, that can cause some sort of bleeding problems. And if you're taking a lot more zinc, then that can cause some urinary problems, nausea, stomach pains, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I would be cautious if you're taking large doses of some of those things like vitamin E and zinc, because those can have been shown to have issues. But if you're not doing that, um, and if you're just taking sort of a small multivitamin um, or something like that, that's usually okay. Or if you're taking vitamin D or vitamin B, which a lot of people are, those are okay. But specifically those two, if you're taking it sort of in addition as a supplement, that's something that you should speak to your doctor about to see if you've actually, you know, you're taking too much of it. But it's something to think about. Dr. Diabaka, we've gotten a number of questions today about cataracts. Um, and you know, in their connection to to um, to AMD. So I guess you know, kind of in any particular order, does does do cataracts cause AMD? Does AMD cause cataracts? Does if you have cataracts, does that affect your your AMD treatment or vice versa? So really, just kind of any part of the cataract sure. or AMD sure. intersection that you want to talk with. Talk about yeah. So, so you know, AMD doesn't necessarily cause cataracts or vice versa, but both are age related. So that's the first thing to remember that you know, as we get older, we develop both diseases in tandem. We develop many diseases, but those two in particular, they're very age sensitive. In addition, smoking can cause both of them as well. So if you're a smoker and you're getting older, both of those things may cause you to have AMD and cataracts. Um, I did mention earlier that if you you know if you have a large number of injections, and I mean quite a few 
few over years, um, you can certainly uh, start developing a small cataract faster in the eye that's being injected than the other, um, than the contralateral eye. So that's a, a, a way to kind of link the two. Um, you know, one of the questions that we're often asked is, you know, whether a surgery for cataracts um, you know, can cause progression or something like that. Now, the the data out there is very equivocal. So I would say I would say at present, no. So you can go ahead and get your cataract surgery if you have AMD. However, the way I treat patients, just because when someone progresses from dry to wet, uh, we need to be Johnny on the spot and take care of them, you know, with injections or at least make sure and monitor them. I like to monitor them much more closely. So if somebody I've been, you know, following for years is about to get cataract surgery, I tend to kind of make them come in just to see me just a little bit earlier right around the time maybe after that they get their cataract surgery to make sure nothing has occurred. Um, but in reality, there's no huge data set that shows us that. So I would, so it's not really connected in terms, you should not be frightened of getting cataract surgery if you have AMD, but I think it's always good to be vigilant and see your doctor a little earlier um, just, to, just to make sure that everything is sort of squared away and that nothing untoward has happened because we can intervene in this era more quickly um, with medicines, as we discussed earlier, than we could have in the past. Um, um, and so, and so, sort of that's that's what it is. But again, there doesn't cause the two. Um, but it's a lot of, like I said, there's if you smoke or if you're getting older, you're gonna your your risk for increase of getting either of those independently is higher. Well, thank you. That addresses a number of questions today. And, and Dr. Diabak, I want to kind of switch gears to um, to to the weather and and the seasons and how that affects eyes. Um, you know, you know, for example, here in Maryland, it's been perpetually gray and foggy for weeks. Uh, my sure, mother in New sure. Hampshire has blinding uh, sun off of off of the snow that she has up there. So, any tips for people to to navigate? And the sun seems to get really low in the sky in the winter. You know, yeah. it, it you know, kind of then the house can get dark and and shadowy. Any tips for to help people navigate both inside and out of the house during the winter? Sure. I mean, I think um, so. Uh, one of the one of the issues with snow, to be honest, you can get snow blindness. People, this happens to skiers, so it's not unusual for anybody, um, whether they have, you know, AMD or whether they have any type of underlying disease, um, for them to to, to have this issue. Um, it's because the sun, when it hits the the sun's light, is actually polarized, um, unpolarized when it comes out of the sun. But when it hits the snow, it actually becomes one sort of angle, and that can really blind you because it comes right at your eyes, and the angle is 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 uh, is sort of right in your uh, visual axis. One of the things that's easy to do is to just use either sunglasses, but if you're going to be out in the snow or, or maybe even out on a boat, um, because it could, the same phenomenon happens on water, um, is to use polarized sunglasses. So the if your uh, if your sunglasses kind of you know are polarized the right way, and you can ask your optical shop about what this means, um, it can really kind of remove that aspect um, of the sunlight from bouncing on it because it's very preferential to to being blocked by those types of sunglasses. Um, but in general, you know you know wear hats, block your eyes. It's always good to have some sunglasses around, especially if you're if you're having issues. Certainly, if you're having a lot of glare at night and you're looking up at like a street light, you might want to go see your eye care professional because you might have cataracts or something like that, um, and that may be causing more of an issue than you, than you may have otherwise thought, and this new weather is sort of bringing it out. Um, inside, I always tell patients, you know, you need to, you know, especially if they have an underlying disease um, like macular degeneration, night blindness sort of starts to happen. You're not as good seeing at dark 
spots that you than you were before. Um, you know, keep lights on. You know, I mean, I, I it sounds silly, but keep the bathroom light on when you're going to sleep because um, it helps uh, to not fall over and do those sorts of things that could really be a problem in the future. And it's just very easy to do. Um, other things that I do is uh, you know try your best because one of the things that people do when it's dark is they turn on their phone and then they start reading it, and that's you know the next thing that they do, and you know that can really strain your eyes because the backlight of your of your phone tends to have a little bit of more of a blue light, um, which keeps you awake longer and it makes your eyes strain. So one of the other things I tell patients to do is to change their background of their screen to be a little bit less, to be a little bit more red or remove, go into nighttime mode a little more quickly so that way they can go to sleep and wake up uh, appropriately. And so all of these things start happening because it's getting darker and people are staying indoors, that sort of thing. So keep a light on in your bathroom. Try to not stay on your phone too much and wear sunglasses outside, certainly polarized ones if you're looking at the snow too often. Great, and I appreciate that. And kind of want to kind of shift uh, gears again for a second. From your perspective, uh, I know you, you say you see uh, patients in the clinic, uh, you know, on a very reg- at Mount Sinai on a very regular basis. From your perspective, what makes what makes it all work in terms of the the patient, the caregiver, the eye care professional? Like, what's what's the what's the the optimal way that that uh, the visit itself can go well and and um, and you know future visits and adherence like it kind of how can the patient and physi- physician and caregiver all work together uh, best I think it's a great question. I mean, I, I think it's probably as material to our profession as anyone's because of how important it is to make it to these appointments. Um, I, one of the things I try to do is I try to eliminate any sort of communication mishap. So um, we have actually with our uh, EMR, with our electronic medical record, something called MyChart, which allows a patient to basically drop an email, if you will, into their chart, and I can access it at a later point and send it back to them. And through this very HIPAA compliant solution, basically of a legally compliant solution, we can communicate with each other even off hours. So if a patient has a question that they need to have answered, they can send it to me. The other thing that I often do is instead of whenever I schedule appointments, if I know that a patient's going to have to see me multiple times, I try to get those appointments all scheduled at once. So if, for instance, when someone starts off with an injection profile because they have uh, macular degeneration that is wet, I try to schedule three appointments because the loading doses of these injections typically are once a month for three months. So because of that, I like to just say, okay, well, here are, we need to go three months in a row. And that allows the patient, myself, whoever their caregiver is, to discuss amongst each other exactly whether there's going to be a problem two months from now, which you may not have thought about if you're just doing single uh, visits. Um, and that's really important because I think, you know, you, the one as we heard with that other paper that we discussed earlier on in the conversation, you know, if you miss one visit, especially early on, something devastating could happen. So it's good to get those out of the way and kind of schedule them such that the patient can come. Um, and then for me, one of the things that we often do is if I see that a patient can't say, get there, I see they're in a wheelchair, or something is required, I try to communicate with their primary care physician or connect them if they don't have a primary care physician or somebody that kind of manages their other care um, with a social worker or someone that can help from our uh, department so that way we can connect them to these people and they would be informed of their issues with seeing and that sort of thing. So I think overall the answer is communication as much as possible, but also to eliminate any of these other variables that routinely pop up um, with, with this sort of a... Um, a disease um, uh, that we we face with, with macular degeneration. Well, thanks. That's that's great advice. And uh, Dr. Diabate, uh before we conclude, I just want to definitely thank you for uh, 
for being a part of this. This is the first time in a Bright Focus chat and really welcome you to the, the Bright Focus family and we'd love to have you uh, uh, back in a, in a future discussion. So just kind of in conclusion, when you look back on, on your, your career um, uh, you know, as a clinician and also uh, you know, uh, teaching future, um, uh, future eye care professionals, I was wondering, is there like one big thing you've learned in your career or is there like one piece of advice that you'd like to say to all of your patients or just wondering if you had some, some final thoughts for us today? Sure. I mean, I, I, I think the the one thing I've learned in my career is that there's really nothing better than to do, than to do what I do. And that's how I feel. Um, there's nothing better than to give someone back uh, vision when, when they've potentially lost it. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of the best feelings in the world. And it really, the, the, the amount that it helps people is, is just immense. I don't know how else to put that. Um, the, uh, so, you know, so we're, this is a field that is, uh, that is super, super important, um, it, from my perspective, and it can really, really change people's lives if you, if we advance it and if we can, and we, if we can treat our patients well. Um, the other thing is that we treat, I mean, I tell the residents and fellows this, we treat heterogeneous, a heterogeneous group of patients. We treat neonates all the way up to the oldest of patients. We treat all genders. We treat all different types of people, different diseases affecting the young the old, you know, women, men, anybody, we, we treat. It's not like, as, especially as a retina specialist, it's not as if there's a specific one for older people and, you know, a specific one for middle-aged people. So you have to, you get to have the opportunity to see all different types of patients. So it's actually one of the most kind of exhilarating parts of, the, of, 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 my, of my career is that I get to do that. Um, the piece of advice that I give, I would love to give my patients is that, you know, don't give up hope. I mean, I, I think that that's one of the things that, uh, you know, is instructive if you look at our history, especially in retina. Um, we are right now on the verge of helping people who have genetic illnesses that were unfixable as early as two years ago. And now we have an FDA approved um, tri uh, a drug for, for gene therapy, which is the only one that exists of, of, of any of the fields. And it's for retina. Um, and then we didn't have these medications for for you know, for these you know, Beovu or Ilia or Lucentis for for, for decades, um, we were we we considered macular degeneration basically unfixable, and then all of a sudden now it's something that we actually have some tool in our armamentarium to do something about it. So you know, who knows what's going to happen in five or ten years? Um, and so I always say, you know, it may not be today, right now, but always control the environmental factors that you have because maybe tomorrow we will have come up with something. So that's the advice I give them. Well, that's great, and I think that's a fantastic place uh, t to leave just today's discussion of, of, of don't give up hope, and, and uh, really, it's just tremendous progress in this field. So, uh, again, Dr. Diabakis, want to thank you for being a part of us, our discussion today, and want to thank our audience for um, just a just a tremendous number of questions, and many of which we weren't able to get to today, but we'll we'll hang on to them for for upcoming chats. And um, on behalf of Bright Focus Foundation, thank you for for being with us today. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.